Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is the one and only Erica Hamilton. Before we got on, I was like, her name is Erica Hamilton. Her name is Erica Hamilton. I love you. There's a million things she hasn't done. Hi. <laughs> Hello, love. Hello, darling. Thank me anytime, so thank you. That's okay. That's why we have girlfriends. So listen, my friend, you're one of my favorite people on the face of the planet, but tell me a little bit about the Erica Hamilton story. Who are you? What brought you to this point? Your career journey is quite an interesting one. Yes, I'll keep this brief because it's also been meandering is the word I like to use. But the through thread I would say for my career is it's been a journey to try to work in positions that honestly pull out a chair for someone at a table that normally isn't invited in, and then hand them the memo that decodes all the things that no one's gonna tell them about how to interact, how to basically thrive in an environment that likely is not set up for them to be successful at the start. And so that translates for me into, I've worked in the corporate sector, I've worked in the nonprofit sector, usually with an eye towards leading or designing programs that empower BIPOC and women leaders to be the best versions of themselves possible. So it could be, how do I strengthen my leadership skills so I can move up in the nonprofit sector and drive deeper impact? It can be, how do I create space to get out of my own way? Like participating in groups I've facilitated to have a regular practice of self-reflection and self-consideration for how you can tangibly like really get clear on what you want and really start to think about how do I make progress towards that and how do I pull together my accountability squad to help me do that. My recent or current incarnation, I should say, is I am pursuing a portfolio career life, which people always are like, what is that? And essentially what that means is a few years ago, I had a big epiphany. I'm the mother of two current teenagers, AKA my coworkers right now. <laughs> um, but I had an epiphany that when I really, if I really took a hard look at myself in the mirror, I wasn't showing up in my identity of motherhood, especially black motherhood that I had always espoused and that I aspired to. And largely what was getting in the way of that was I had let my career basically consume most of the waking moments of my time and my attention. And so what I did was basically decide to make a series of changes to create a set of activities that I pursue with my work time, but that are no longer singularly tied to one institution. So it could be consulting for some people. Right now, it could mean going out on my own and starting new ventures. It could mean also finding friends like you who are interested in supporting these communities in the same way and figuring out how can we work together to do that and quite frankly, also pay our bills, right? And not right. be destitute and take care of people we need to. So that's a long answer, but start. Frankly. Okay. Well, before we jump into that, cause I think that's super critical and certainly will lead into the discussion that we have about your new venture. Tell me briefly, cause you've had a lot of very interesting leadership roles, both in the corporate and nonprofit sectors. And yeah. I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Yes. Yeah, so tactically I started my career in the nonprofit sector, working on the front line. So basically working in nonprofits with families, with students, uh, started out at an organization some people might know called Prep for Prep. Actually met many of the people who are still 
critical and core and my heart's in my life right now. And that was like, I won't say how many decades ago, but it was a long time ago. And that job was basically coming in and like doing the work, like really being on the front lines. Went from that to continue to work in the nonprofit sector, but I would say the next big pivot for me was working at an organization called SEO and basically helping to support BIPOC students around the country to enter life-changing corporate internships over their summer breaks, right? So helping them figure out how do you get into these institutions that quite frankly, you're not invited to always, or frankly, are only looking for people of color from the thinnest slice of institutions, right? Like if you, you know, it's like if you didn't go to Harvard, you can't do math, like crazy things like that you're having to overcome. And worked in that position to design new ideas for how we could support students once they got in the door, because it wasn't just get them in, it was like figure out how to keep them there and be successful. And that job accidentally led to a transition in the corporate sector. So the joke I like to make is, worked in that position, went to graduate school in the evenings. What I did not realize I was doing at the time was pricing myself out of the public sector. And ironically, I was getting my first graduate degree in public administration and I was like a social justice warrior and I knew that that was what I was gonna do. And then I got my promissory note and I was like, oh my God, I can't work in the sector. So that forced a pivot that I'm really thankful for into corporate. So basically spent a number of years at a bank creating recruitment programs for them to recruit undergraduates in. And part of my mantle was to diversify those ranks. So it actually was a really nice continuation. Spent a number of years doing that, also developing leadership development programs for people of color. So again, figuring out how do we get them the secret memo? Like once you get in, how do you know what am I supposed to do to be successful? And quite frankly, how do we help create the environment to be more hospitable? to allow them to be more successful, even when they worked really hard. Like what else did we have to change? Did that for a number of years. And just to fast forward, somewhere along the way, got another master's because I'd always been intrigued by business. And numbers are a language that are universally translatable. So went back and got a business school degree, came back and worked in the private sector again, but this time on the side of the business. So understanding that you have to know how to generate value and sell ideas and make money in order to like speak to some people who only think in that dimension. So did that. And then honestly, when the, the real estate downturn happened in 08, the mark, the bottom fell out of the markets really was a seminal point for me. And I had my daughter back then and my son were tiny. I think I'd had my first epiphany of, I need to be working in a space that brings me joy and that I can justify not spending time with you guys by doing this. Like it's gotta be something that it's worth the trade-off. And that's what started the return to the nonprofit sector. And so have been here for over a decade again, really working with leaders, being a leader myself. So I was the CEO of City or New York for folks who know what that is. I then shifted into becoming a grant maker because I thought again, what's a great way to try to drive impact for leaders in the sector? It's to help increase the ranks of people on the other side, giving out resources that share identities, not just in terms of professional, but personal as well. And so that's, I just vomited like all of that over you, but it gives a little more clarity of the transition. I love it. I love it because it's clear to me, as you said before, the thorough line is about increasing access and equity for folks. You've heard it here first, the hot new venture that Ms. Hamilton has in store 
is she's launching her executive coaching career for BIPOC women. Mm -hmm. So I just want to know why this particular segment and like, what is that secret memo that we apparently didn't get circulated? Like we were not on the mailing list for the secret memo. Like what are the issues that you're seeing among BIPOC female executives? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. So back to the portfolio approach to the career. One of the ventures I'm focused on right now is launching my own enterprise called The Memo I Never Got. And essentially really focuses on creating space and opportunity to deepen investments in the development of BIPOC and women leaders, right? The sweetest spot that I I love working in is with women of color, like just helping them, first of all, define a boundary of the space that they need to exhale. Like, let's just start with, can we exhale? And secondly, is to then exist in those spaces with them as a thought partner to help them recenter on what their priorities are, what their aspirations are, and it can be professional or personal. And then to also really think about how their current existence is either achieving those goals and aspirations, or in many cases, quite frankly, is not. And I would say that was the same for me, is what I realized. And then helping those leaders figure out, how do I redesign my existence? And not in a flip the switch, eat, pray, love, go to Bali and meditate kind of way, because we usually cannot afford to do that financially. (laughs) But in more of an inspiring, but also pragmatically planned approach, to make phased transitions to that state that you want to be in, right? So, for example, a lot of times when I talk to women of color, I hear a lot about aspirations of entrepreneurship. That is, like, amazing, and it's joyful, and it, like, literally light up when they talk about it. But then when you start to inquire about how much time they might be dedicating to thinking about the venture and what are the causes they want the venture to focus on and who are the clients. That's when you realize this thing that's their big dream, their big passion, they're kind of sort of squeezing in on the margins. They're not dedicating the space and usually because they don't have it. And so they can't even figure out, like, if I want to pursue this thing, how would I make sure that I'm financially stable enough to try to start investing in this. So even sitting down and trying to help them build a plan, like a pragmatic plan for how do you do that? How do you price yourself? How do you develop the hustle career? Sitting and doing that kind of coaching, or quite frankly, if the leader's in a place where they they really just wanna focus on their career in the space they're in and developing and strengthening their leadership skills but feeling like things are getting in the way, just sitting with them and creating space to just deep dive on that and provide thought partnership and accountability. So not just coming up with this beautiful plan in that little space we occupy, but also codifying it and then serving as an accountability partner. That's the real focus. So we should have another talk because women (laughs) entrepreneurship is like totally my jam. And I'm literally always trying to talk people into quitting their jobs and starting their own businesses. But that's a whole other thing. I'm like, do it, do it. (laughs) But like real talk, is there a way for women of color in leadership roles, let's say in the social justice nonprofit space to actually thrive because so often it just feels like you either have to like totally sell your soul or you're burn out totally and walk away. And like you and I are two prime examples of like, we were EDs, we got real tired. We decided we needed to go do our own thing. So I guess I'm just wondering like, is there a world where you can stay and thrive? Yeah. Yeah, there's a mantra I keep in my head, and it's 
everybody's all about lingo and shorthand and sound bites. And I think of it, the mantra is like, it's three simple lines. It's wake to woke to work, right? And what I think of when I say that is, wake means like getting up. Like if you think about getting out of bed, it's like, think about that in the construct of your life and like really stopping to take stock. Am I feeling as valued as I think I should be? Am I feeling as impactful? Like if I know what my purpose is and what I'm supposed to be doing on this planet, do I feel like I'm achieving that? When I look at how I allocate my time and work tends to be the biggest piece of that pie of allocation. So that's the place where people usually start. So that's sort of like the wake up is like the thinking about like honestly looking in the mirror and assessing kind of sort of the current state of play. When I think of being woke in terms of yourself, the way I define that is then starting to get clear about what the vision is for the life you want to be living. And I say life holistically. So I think people cleave their professional and their personal apart too much. Like those two things integrate because you're one person and you have to like manage it all. And so woke to me is just sitting down and getting clear on your, I call them non-negotiables, right? So there's an exercise I often tell people, I actually engage in this annually, but then I also do it at times when I think I need to make a pivot, especially in work. But I sit down and I really think about as far as I am allocating my time in a certain area of my life, what are my top 10 priorities? And I call them my non-negotiables because it helps me to hold myself accountable. Whether it's how much money I need to make, whether it's the kind of people I work with, whether it's managing a staff, like just don't put any judgment on yourself, just write down. Like if I could design my own existence, these would be the top 10 criteria I would use to define a successful existence. And then work for me, which is the last part of the Trinity, is get at it. Like, so how do we then sit down and translate where you are now to where you want to be into a plan to close that gap, right? And so it could be thinking about, of the 10 non-negotiables I listed, these three are the ones that I know would be the most game-changing. I need to set a timeline to try to achieve them. And I need accountability for that because oftentimes in this sector, honestly, I think many leaders, but women of color leaders in particular, we achieve so much of our success and drive impact through force of will, right? We just put our heads down and we grind it out in ways that might lead to success for our organizations, but have such a high cost for our well-being and our ability to be sustainable and to thrive that it's, it's almost self-destructive. It's literally choosing other over self in a way that doesn't help you at all, right? So that's sort of the way I think about that construct. I think you can thrive in the sector as a woman of color. I think we're in a moment right now, which I'm thrilled about. We need to really get clear on what we need to thrive and start speaking it out more and often and getting other people to speak it out on our behalf that hold the power to make the change happen. Yes, 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 yes. So much of what you're talking about to me is about money and power. <laughs> and <laughs> let's talk about money for a hot second, right? Hot second. <laughs> because I feel like women of color, as we know, you know, and we've certainly seen the, the data and the research on this, which is that women of color led organizations are underfunded. Women of color are underpaid. If you're a black woman, it's like, what, 60 cents to the dollar yep. of a white okay. man? That's time we checked, yeah. So we have all of these sort of institutional 
racist limitations around money. And then on top of it, we also do a great job of limiting ourselves around our earning potential, our ability to ask for what we believe we deserve, and our ability to ask for money on behalf of our organization. So tell me a little bit about your money mindset and how that might have evolved over time. Yeah. So I have to say, I... You're getting a lot out of me, Rhea. I normally do not talk about myself to this degree. You're Bring a good it. friend. The it's genie of the bottle. Come on. <laughs> we had it. Yeah. So here's what I'll say is my key headlines um, that I have to often remind people of. I've been very fortunate in life. I always say to people, if you ever really want to get to know who someone is as a leader, you can't look at their LinkedIn and think, got it. And too many of us do that. Many times what forms the core essence of who we are happened actually before anything you would ever put on LinkedIn. And so I say that to say my mindset and approach on money actually came from growing up with none. So I was not raised by my parents. Um, I grew up in an extended family household. I really grew up really honestly, like love of family and also God, the universe, karma, whatever you call it, pushing people into my life who like espoused just different ways of thinking about the world than what my view might have been constrained to growing up in the Bronx, right? And so when it comes to wealth, the one thing I knew very early on was that what is the line in the Ariana Grande song? Whoever said money can't solve problems must have not, I'm not gonna say the lyric right, I'm gonna find it before we finish, but I'll find it. But I grew up with the mindset of money, it can alleviate some things that can get you to happiness. And most importantly to me, money buys options. Like the mindset I have across all dimensions of my life is I'm in the business of always keeping options open for myself and finding new ones as much as I can. So when it comes to money, my big goal is number one is thinking about wealth. So not just earnings in the here and now, but really looking at myself in terms of my total valuation. And I say that from the perspective of my salary, my savings, my retirement, but also quite frankly, my valuation of the skills I'm bringing into a space and what I think they should be paid, knowing that very clearly before I enter negotiations, because whatever I get out of that negotiation will contribute to my wealth. My mantra right now is to try to honestly put my children in a much better financial position than I was when I turned 18 and became an adult. And the way I think about that is I think the biggest gift I could give them would be being able to fund a year of them just being the human that they want to be and not having to work in a job to pay bills. So I think about that as a goal. I think about, you know, I always joke with people, I want to retire early. Like I think I have about seven years left for my retirement goal. And by retirement, I just mean only really choosing to work with people and on projects that derive sheer joy and earning some kind of compensation, but that not having to be the compensation that dictates the quality of my life. So I, I'm a big talker about investments, savings, like how do you maximize the money you have now in terms of the strategy you deploy to have it be highly valued. But I think honestly, like this goes back to, I think oftentimes we don't have this conversation, especially not women of color in groups. We don't talk about how much we make. We don't talk about how in debt we are. We don't talk about the relatives that we're having to pay to support that many of us have to do that don't allow us to put money into a retirement account. So I think the place that it starts for most of us is like thinking about, is there a group or a squad or even one other person that I trust that I can engage in to talk about my money woes, my money hopes, 
and try to set up some kind of a plan for us to start thinking about building our wealth would be a step. Mm-hmm. Girl, listen, I could talk about money all day oh, I long. You. I love talking about money. I love money. I'm all about building wealth, especially for women of color, generational wealth and the whole thing. Yeah. Recently, my new hobby is I started investing in the stock market just for funsies. <laughs> reading my Warren Buffett. I had to start thinking about money differently because again, like I grew up in a very middle-class house, but yeah. very much like the immigrant mentality of like, totally. put your head down, work, if you get a paycheck, that's all that you should expect. Totally. And then you work till you're 65 or 70 and then you retire. Yeah. And like this whole journey of entrepreneurship and being a consultant and like doing my own thing, I've had to like reprogram myself in the stories I tell myself. And literally, I mean, I talk about this all the time. Like when I started my business, I went home to visit my parents and my mom scooched a check to me across the table. She's like, I'm worried that you're not going to pay your bills. And I was like, oh, that's thanks. I'm good. I'm good. Like, I, I got this, ma. But I think it's like that old school mentality of like, if you don't have that stable paycheck, if you don't have that like regular nine to five job, yeah. then you're going to be down by the river in a cardboard box, which is always oh. like my. Oh, my no. That's, I love that you said that. For a long time in life, many, many years ago, before kids, I lived in fear of the shopping cart vision for myself. I like literal fear to the point where like friends had to stage an intervention to me when I went into corporate America to be like, girl, you could buy new shoes and they don't have to be from the bargain store in the neighborhood. Like you're in a different environment. You need to show up in a different way. But there was this fear of investing in myself. Like even I'll tell you the one I hear a lot about. So one of the pursuits I'm engaging in right now is working with a wonderful nonprofit organization called the Institute for Nonprofit Practice. It basically just launched its programs in New York. They focus on really developing leaders that are gonna be at the forefront of equity and social justice movements and driving deep impact, like changing our country for the better, right? And so one thing that is interesting is we just started the program in January. We just graduated our first cohort. We're going to have another cohort this fall. But the cohort we just graduated was, let's say, middle-level, approaching senior-level leadership in nonprofits. And the other thing about this organization is they predominantly focus their cohorts to be BIPOC-heavy, right? So it's not exclusively BIPOC. But it is specifically targeting this community because it's the one that we know is most underinvested in when it comes to this area. But there's a session that we do talking about money. It's talking about the business of understanding money in your organization, right? And so one of the things that I think also compounds this issue is many, many spaces in the nonprofit sector, it is not the norm for the organization to talk about its fiscal and financial health until something catastrophic happens, right? And so one of the things I was struck by in these sessions we did this spring or this winter was the number of students in our class who actually, you could literally see on the screen their eyes opening in terms of realizing when I know how to read an income statement, I actually know a lot about what's going well and what might not be going so well, and it tells me the questions I should ask. And then the parallel is you could see them also starting to connect, but I should be able to do this in my personal life as well, and I am not. And you started to see like all the light bulbs go off of, oh my goodness, like understanding your money philosophy for your institution is important, but more important for you as a person and not being scared or intimidated by money 
and trying to figure out like, what is it that I want to achieve? How do I set goals? Because it just reshapes your whole approach to how you negotiate for everything in your career, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you look differently at a salary number when you have a target in your head, as opposed to when you walk in just feeling grateful for the job and any That's conversation. Right. So Anyway, right. that was my other thought about money. That you just yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because, all right, last thing I'll say about money, because I've really, I'm working on a, a training right now for early stage fundraisers. Yeah. And I realized yeah. that your success as a fundraiser is 80% your mindset and philosophy about money and 20% tactics. Mm-hmm. Like I could give you strategy and tactics all damn day, okay. but at the end of the day, if you like don't believe that you deserve it, if you're coming from a scarcity mindset, if you are not aligning yourself and putting up your own blocks about money, and your own baggage about money, strategies and tactics are not going to help you. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And you, I just will give this last compliment. I think when it comes to leading, not leading from a scarcity mindset and looking more with an opportunity lens and also just entrepreneurialism, like you need to be offering sessions just to help people think about how to do that in their day to day. Because I can just recall many a conversation with you where you've made me go, wait a minute, why am I limiting my own potential? (laughs) I just want to encourage you to like do that talk soon, please. I'm all about it. Like my life purpose is to help people maximize their potential. And I feel like with women of color and you're doing the same thing is we often don't see ourselves the way other people see us. And so in our minds, we're like, we're playing this small game. But like, I look at someone like yourself Again, it's like a mutual admiration society, but I'm like, you're uh-huh. such a badass. Like, I don't know why you're not out there taking names, kicking ass, raising a ton of money, building wealth. Yeah, same thing. You know, being the president of the United States. Like, whatever you want to do. I'm, <laughs> I'm behind it. Conversation. Team don't Erica. Don't <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying. So last question before you open it up to the folks on the call. What advice do you have for women of color executives to be at their best and how can coaching really help them? Because I feel like a lot of women of color execs are like, oh, I can't afford that. Or like, that's a luxury. Yeah. Or especially in the nonprofit, it's like, I'd rather give my staff the professional development. Totally. And I think a lot about the notion of putting the oxygen mask on yourself. We need to treat those types of considerations with the same type of lens as we think of when we get on an airplane. And the most important thing you need to do is secure yourself first. It's not selfish. It's not self-indulgent. It is actually the best investment you can make, especially if you were in a leadership position, because you were then going to be able to disperse all of the benefits of that investment abroad across a much broader population of people. The way I think about it is when I had to make the transition from being somebody working in direct service to somebody leading a direct service team. And I really wrestled with this. I fought it. I felt like I was just betraying my purpose. And it was really working, honestly, at the time with a lot of mentors who were helping me think through job opportunities that they helped me to translate, no, part of driving even more impact is resourcing yourself as a leader. And again, especially as a woman of color, especially as a black woman, like we are just, it's ingrained into us, sacrifice yourself for everybody else. And if you don't do that, you are somehow not a good person, not committed to the cause. So first of all, unprogramming ourselves from that mindset takes time. And so that's where, quite frankly, I do think coaching can be helpful, whether it's as an individual or even in a small group. Before we started this call, you were sharing a brilliant 
recommendation that more leaders need to think about going into group coaching situations, maybe with people in their squad, like people they trust who are also at a similar place to be like, let's share some of these costs and let's get some collective facilitation and support to help us think more clearly and faster. And it's not to say that coaching, you need a coach because you're deficient. Everybody, to your point, we don't see ourselves in the way other people see us. And so for us, it's like a doctor trying to self-diagnose themselves. Like that doesn't work. Like you're your worst own patient. And so if it's coaching that you consider, I think that can be extremely helpful, especially because if you set it for a certain amount of time, it also creates urgency to prioritize doing this work for yourself. If it's mentoring, I think it's about really thinking about who are people you know or people you have access to who are espousing some approach to their lives or some level of existence that you respect deeply and you value and like reaching out and asking if they wouldn't mind having a cup of coffee to talk about a topic. I wouldn't say have a send an email to say, would you be my mentor and have a cup of coffee because people are so overwhelmed, they often will not respond. But the first step is just, can I make a connection with this person? Can I let them know some things that I'm thinking about in my life and kind of sort of struggling to get past in terms of deciding? And can I ask them for some wisdom and some guidance on that? So I think coaching, mentoring, just don't do it alone and don't wait for tomorrow. Like I think the other thing I often hear is people being like, oh, you know, someday, someday. The next thing you know, you turn around, you're 45 with kids, other people that you, more people that you have to take responsibility for, which means even less and less time for yourself. So the sooner that you can start to engage in these practices, I think the better. And just committing to do something to invest in self is the most important message I want people to hear. So I don't have children. I don't have small humans that I'm in charge of. But of course, I understand that it is a really tough balancing act, and particularly now that y'all are quarantine with your children and see them all day. And what I hear a lot is that there's just such guilt that working mothers feel like they're not 100% at work. They're not 100% at home. They feel like not able to juggle and balance everything. So talk to me a little bit about how you get over the guilt or if you do. Yeah, I don't have the guilt, but honestly, but first of all, can I just say, thank you for posing that question. I think it is extremely, I'm not surprised you posed it, but it's so spot on with like a big trend happening right now. And the fact that you raised that up to be spoken about, I think removes some of the, the ism around it. Like the feeling of like, you're not supposed to talk about that. That's like the dirty secret you keep in your closet. So it just makes it real for people to know other people are struggling. I will say this to you. I don't feel the guilt. I feel guilt occasionally, but not the way other working moms do, especially working moms of color. Because quite frankly, of the shifts I decided to make a few years ago, it was having that candid conversation with myself to say, like, what does motherhood actually mean to me? Because I also think we sometimes get too caught up in the, I didn't make lunch today, or Teddy didn't have his favorite shirt. And it's like, let's step back, back a higher level from that level for a minute. And let's think about what motherhood really means, right? Does it mean to you the quality of the time you spend? So maybe you don't spend as much, but the focus you have in the moments you're there, you are present. I think it's thinking about setting a goal for yourself, but for yourself based on your reality. So like friends that I had during the school year who, and I mean, I'm not laughing at them. So if any of them end up listening to this, no, I'm not laughing at you, but I am chuckling. But who would like call in a panic in the bathroom and be like, I literally just ran out of wine 
and the kids are about to get out of school and I don't know how I'm going to make it, right? Like, like in COVID, I don't know. And it's like, but what is it you have to make it through? Have you defined that for yourself, right? Like, we have to remember, like, our kids, the way they're assessing our parenting skills is not at the same bar of the expectation we're setting for ourselves. So I think just getting clear about quality time in this week could be, I need to have dinner every night with the kids during the week, which means I got to set my work schedule up to do that. It's like, once you get clear on what the goal is, it then helps you to try to create the strategies to achieve it. And then if you fall down every once in a while, it's just a great reminder that you're human. You're supposed to fall down, learn, get back up and keep going. We're human? What do you mean? There you go, girl. There you go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sonia, what is your question? Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for the conversation. It is refreshing and great to hear. And I have to go back to what we were just talking about, expectations about trying to do it all. So be a good mom, whatever that actually means. Running an organization, being responsible for your team, meeting your obligations, your board-driven obligations, all of these things and trying to do it well. And I feel like, and so this is a personal reflection, that everything is good enough. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I am excelling I'm hitting it out of the ballpark with everything. I know that's impossible, but that pressure is there, right? Mm-hmm. So how, right, it's a basic question. How do you prioritize and try and hit everything so you don't feel like, at the end of the day, slightly guilty? Does that make sense? I think it does. Thank you for the personal reflection and sharing that candor on this call. Appreciate you for that. So here's what I would say. There's a session that I run when I do leadership training series for leaders of color, but particularly women of color. I try to frame this through the lens of sacrifice versus regret. So making sacrifices versus having regrets. I would always choose one over the other. I would always choose to make sacrifices than to have the regrets. And the way I think about those two existences is really comes back to clarity. Clarity on What is it that's being demanded of me right now by everything outside of myself and by myself? So getting all of that clear on a list, a legal pad, however you do it. And then honestly, like really sitting down to assess what's possible. Like of these things, if I have 20 things, what are the things that I know I have to devote the majority of my attention on? Because if I don't, I do not want to have the long-term adverse consequences that might occur. But I think it's getting that list and then really thinking hard for yourself about what are the sacrifices you're going to make. So I think your point about things are good, not great, that doesn't feel lovely if that decision is being made unconsciously, I think. If you're just allowing that to happen, I think it feels better if you're the one who says, for example... Listen up, board members. I love y'all. I truly do, and I respect your time and energy, but the time that we are in right now means I can't get board memos out to you a quarter or two weeks in advance. It means I'm not always going to be able to be the person running the entire agenda, so I need somebody in here to step up and do that, or we're going to have to shorten these meetings for some amount of time. But it's about you saying how you're going to not show up, communicating that to lower expectations for people for some period of time, And then throwing the energy you have into the things that you're like, these things cannot fail. My children, my marriage, my, like whatever it is you define. I think the goal here is not to 
eliminate guilt. I think it's really to reduce it as much as possible. I think that's part of the problem is we all think if we don't get our guilt down to zero, we're somehow still failing. But I think we have to be self-aware enough, especially in this moment, to realize getting it down to zero is probably impossible. So the next best thing I can do is figure out how do I reduce it. I just said a whole lot. Does that make sense to you, Sonia? It makes total sense. Thank you so much. Yeah, the guilt thing, I think it's, we got to learn how to live with it to certain yeah, degree, sure. right? Uh, <laughs> let it go, yeah. let it go. <laughs> let it, there you go. You know what? You should start singing that out loud when you start feeling guilty. Just start singing it. That's right. If I could add sort of two ideas yeah. that I have around that too. So I've really started to embrace the idea of being a B minus because yeah. I realize, look, number one, my B minus is most people's A's, right? But also like sometimes good enough is just good enough. And then the second thing is getting clarity about the things I actually want to do and I'm good at and then figuring out how to outsource the other stuff. So like, you know, sometimes throwing money at a problem does work. Like sometimes like having someone come in to clean my house because I just don't have time to clean the toilet. Like I'm going to do that. I'm not going to feel guilty about it. Hmm. I was thinking about this recently. So you and I have talked about the strategy of like, what would Chad do? Chad being like the mediocre white man. And so often, uh, especially like in fundraising and stuff, I'm like, huh, why is it that I feel like an imposter and that I don't know what I'm talking about despite 15 years of being in the industry, whereas mediocre white men feel very comfortable yeah. talking and offering their opinions on everything. Actually, I was on a really interesting call the other day that shall remain nameless to protect the guilty, but I had three white men explaining to me about Chinese women leaders that they found inspiring. One of them was talking about like the empress of China and someone was talking about like this Chinese woman pirate. And I was like, yes, thank you, white men. Thank you for white mansplaining Chinese women to me. Okay, Rochelle, you have a question. Uh, Hi, y'all. I love y'all so much. So good to see you. I was having this reflection. I think part of why I've been quiet, I was like, I don't really know how to frame it and I don't really know what the question is um, Mm -hmm. per se, but I think the reflection I've been having lately, and I don't sure if this is right, but I think that my job is probably about 30% harder because I'm a woman of color, a black woman in particular. And I mean that, and I'm like, I think that's the number I give myself just to feel a little bit better because if that percentage was higher, I don't know, uh, I don't know what that would mean. But, and I think about that in, in many different instances, like, you know, in external facing instances and even internally, as I think about like the expectations that I think my team has for me, or just even the ways that I show up, I know that that would feel different or how I would show up would come off different, I think, if I was different race or a different gender. And so I think I just, I think there's a lot of work that like I'm trying to do to like unpack and think about how I show up. And a lot of the things that you all were saying about the mindset has been really key. But I think one thing I've been taught thinking about is like, how do I do more work to like let other people know about that in a way that is like, I guess I want more people doing that work too, to like understand and do that unpacking. So it's not just, it's not just like, oh, like, you know, I'm feeling like inadequate or I'm feeling this, or I need to set clarity and expectations. I think it's like the work that I want other people to be doing, to be reflective on, like, why am I taking this differently that I think I would take it if it was a white woman or a white man a leader? And I guess I've just been struggling with how to do that in the different spaces that I'm in so that it doesn't feel like all the burden is on me to do that reflection and think about how I would approach that. That's kind of my question. Yeah, I think we could have a whole other conversation on this because when you were speaking, I literally, and I don't know if this is happening to you, but Rochelle, I was literally like recalling, like my heart is like racing because I was recalling moments where I have either been in spaces that exist in the manner you're describing or when they didn't, 
what my reaction was when I actually was in spaces where before I could say how offensive this was to me in terms of my treatment, somebody else was saying it and I would be like, wait, how do you know what's in my head? And why do you think it's your job to say it? So the two things I would say is, first off, I can speak because I know you, you are far enough along in your leadership and in your life that do not ever think yourself crazy or off if that is what you are interpreting as happening in the moment. If you were like, this is happening differently for me because of the intersectionality of my identities. I think just like first grounding yourself on that, being factual and not questioning it would be the first step I would say. The second thing I would say to you is, I think when that's happening in your environment that you actually think you have more work to do in, like you aren't finished with building whatever legacy it is that you wanna build and or you actually think and feel this is a space that might want to do better if they understood this issue more deeply. I think that's when you have to really try to identify who in that environment could be an ally for you to have a real honest conversation with. And it could be a conversation that talks about the ways that you are having this feeling that they are reinforcing or that you see them also trying to fight against. But I think it has to be someone that you trust that you think if they had more clarity on this topic, actually would want to be helpful and not in like a pandering or like a check the box, I'm an ally kind of way. I mean like real allyship. And I think the question then becomes, can you build enough of that type of a squad around you or in that space that they can then start to help you do the work. So I can tell you, for example, the, the Institute for Nonprofit Practice that I referenced earlier is led by an amazing woman. Like this woman is like, I'm so shocked we have not met sooner in life than a couple of years ago. And she happens to be a woman of color. And part of what she has done in this organization is really think about from its top to its bottom, how do you create spaces where people, no matter what identities they hold, feel like they belong. And it's like looking at every element of how we operate, looking at how trust is imbued, looking at how we grant decision-making rights, looking at how we hire people to think about designing programs, again, benefiting mostly leaders of color in the nonprofit sector. And I say that to you to say, that was also my experience at City Year. Michael Brown was one of the co-founders. I was just talking about him yesterday. He's a white man, been in the game a long time, but they both sort of operate from this perspective that preventing that type of feeling, especially for their leaders of color and particularly for their women of color, they both start from the premise that that's their, their job. Like it's one of their top priorities for running that organization. And then everything goes from there. So, you know, in those two instances, it's fascinating, right? Because INP is led by a woman of color. City Year was led by this white man. But the way they constructed the environments and the way I experienced them is honestly, Rochelle, unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And I still finding myself at times like needing somebody to pinch me to be like, wow, you can have environments where I don't have to be the only person saying like, how offensive this is to me as a leader because I'm a black woman or how I can't get this donor meeting. And I think the only reason I can't get it is because of my picture that he saw on our website. Like who's gonna help me think through that? Who's gonna help me talk to that? So I say that just to say to you, it does have to start from the top. 
I think if you're able to find people to be allies with you in having more of these conversations and helping you figure out how not to carry the weight, that will only sustain you for a period of time if this work isn't also being done at the top of the organization level and kind of stamping it out. And that was a really long answer, but my heart goes out to you on that one. I do have a question because I, I think we are in a moment right now. And yeah. I think the door is like cracked open a little bit. And I'm just wondering, how do we kick that door down? Yeah, I honestly think it's like finding those people who already get it and like getting clearer with them on like, how do we make this more visible? And, and how do I not carry all the weight? As the person of color in this situation, like how do I not have to be the one constantly carrying the banner? Those are the easiest people. And they very excited right now to step up and carry more weight. And then I think it's about honestly getting this out more into the ether, if you would. So like the one thing I say is I often think these topics are not written about enough. We don't speak about them publicly enough. So like we're here today having this conversation. This is getting this issue out. But I think raising the visibility of this topic in this conversation for people to be more aware of it. And also like if you are safe to do this in your organization, telling your organization where they're not getting it right. Because I think more often than not in this sector, you have more nonprofits walking around thinking, we got it. And when you talk to the people in the organization who hold certain identities, they're like, no, you don't. No, you don't. But somehow that's being missed. So I think, again, that visibility needs to get raised. Okay, so I have one last question. Hello, how are you? Hi. Good. Thank you so much for this talk. I really appreciate it. I've been taking furious notes. I am an Asian American leader with experience in the nonprofit and public sector, and I am looking at new opportunities for myself. Mm. Things that is coming up, and I think most likely in light of sort of everything that's been happening in the world, there are a lot of organizations, both in the private sector and in sort of different kinds of nonprofits, looking for staff focused on DEI issues or on anti-racism work. And one of my questions is, as someone is going through the hiring process, and it's certainly not a safe place, as you were just mentioning, you know, what are some of the ways that we can sort of assess whether an organization is truly thinking about how to change dynamics in the organization, as opposed to sort of doing this kind of search for someone to satiate some sort of optical need? Yeah, I think that's an awesome question. I love it because again, we have this moment to hold people more accountable in conversations than we ever, wouldn't we had in a long time, so we should lean in. The two themes I would say I would frame questions would be around the what and the why, right? The what would be, you know, for example, I would want to know, like, how is this work and how are these positions being funded? Like, what budget are these things coming out of? Is it, if it's coming out of the business, I'm impressed. If it's coming out of HR's operating fund, I'm a little concerned because when the drop happens in the stock market or the economy shrinks, that's the first place they're going to cut. So I want to know, like, where is the funding coming from? I'd want to look at the reporting lines for the work. So who do these positions report into and where does this initiative have ownership? The best answer is the CEO. And the further you get from that on the org chart, the more levels of distance, the less I think invested in enterprise really is, especially in this moment, especially if they're engaging in this work for the first time. Nothing speaks like numbers. I said it earlier, like they are universally translatable. So I would want to have an organization share with me 
the metrics that they have historically used to measure progress and success in these initiatives. And if they don't have those, which is what you'll hear from a lot of enterprises, then I want to know what metrics they have on the draft board that they're about to finalize and put into place. And the metrics are not only measuring the kind of sort of static figures, if you would, like how many people that, that self-identify as BIPOC did we get or whatever, whatever. I think the metrics are also linked to specific departments, i.e. it's this department's responsibility to be achieving this. And if they don't, there is accountability, which is my next point, which is asking like who owns these initiatives ultimately. The more you see them siloed outside of the business, the worse it is for the efforts. The less buy-in you're gonna have and the more siloing you're getting, so it's not a core part of the enterprise's work. And then the last two things I would say, I would wanna know what are like the three most significant accomplishments they've had in this work in the past 10 years. And I say 10 years because what you're gonna hear a lot of right now is, oh, well, we just started this work. Okay, that's flag number one. Or we have things that we launched a couple years ago, but we don't have results on. And then my push would be, well, tell me sort of milestones that you've hit, right? Because if, especially if it's in the private sector, all projects have milestones. You don't just wait to see if you achieve profitability on a new launch. You have metrics that you measure along the way to make sure it's on a path to success. And then behind all of those questions, especially when the answers are not to the positive, if they're like, if I say, what did you do in the last 10 years? And they're like, we just started. That's when the why question comes in. Like that's when the power of the why. So I think for each of those categories of questions, I would want to follow up with a why, especially if the answer was not to my satisfaction. And I wouldn't be helpful on my why. Why is that the case? Why do you think that is? But I'm not giving them breadcrumbs to help them come up with excuses for why this work has not been done before now. Does that help give you some ideas? It does. Thank you. Go get them, girl. Good luck. <laughs> Performative wokeness. It's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> so, Erica, obviously, there are folks who are excited to talk with you, excited to work with you. Where can you be found on the interwebs? Oh, you're catching me. You're catching me. So I'm working on an about-to-launch website. It will be up next week. The organization that I am working on on my own is called The Memo I Never Got. But the other thing I would just say in the meantime, if you want to find me and also do good, help do more good in the world, please check out the Institute for Nonprofit Practice. We are recruiting for the next two cohorts of leaders for programs. And in response to the current crisis, all of the programs are free for this year. So it's also a good year to sign up. So August 10th is the deadline if you happen to be in New York, but they also have programs in the Northeast and the Boston area. So look into that as well. But that's my last plug. Okay, wait. So for people who might want to apply to that, is there a certain profile of? Yeah, I love you. Thanks, my sister. Yes, there are two signature programs that they run. The program I was mentioning earlier that we just finished a cohort for in New York is called the Community Fellows Program. And that program is more so for mid-level leaders. You want to think about people with a few years of experience. They're probably one or two down from the CEO in a mid-sized nonprofit and not exclusively people of color, but we really strongly encourage and want more people of color to apply. And the program is always free. That program is always free. And then the other program is called their core program, and that's for slightly more senior leaders. So you want to think about EDs, or if you're in a slightly larger nonprofit, maybe the person reporting into an ED. And that program typically has a cost of about $3,500, which is partially covering the cost of running the program. It's a heavy philanthropic model. But again, for this year, that program is free as well, too. 
So for New York, the deadline's August 10th. So we'd love it if you yourself are interested or you know other people who might be interested, just get the word out. It's the Institute for Nonprofit Practice. Thank you, Rhea. You're welcome. So I will make sure to put that information in the show notes. I'll put it in the chat for y'all. Erica, always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you, everyone.